Hello, listeners. Before we get started, this is a request to all of you. Uh, NK News is running another survey about the podcast. Thank you to everyone who took part in the survey last time. We're doing another survey now to give us more clarity on ways that we might develop the podcast so that it better appeals to a crowd that is not currently listening to it. So please take a couple of minutes to visit nknews.org slash survey and fill out the survey. It really would help us at NK News to put out the best quality product that will help us to grow our audience. Okay, on with the show. podcast listeners welcome to the nk news podcast i'm your host jacko's wetsloot and today it is thursday march 16th 2023 in seoul and i'm joined via zoom all the way from yesterday in new york by jerome sauvage to talk about the work of the united nations field agencies in the dprk first of course as always a reminder to leave a review about this podcast episode on whatever platform you use and share the episode with your friends who you think should hear it or who might be interested what's more like and subscribe to the whole series of podcasts secondly check out nknews.org where each day my journalist colleagues put out the best possible written journalism about north korea a subscription for a year costs less than a dollar a day and that helps to fund the excellent reporting that my colleagues produce each and every day, as well as this very podcast that you're listening to now. Thirdly, follow NK News Org on Twitter and me at JackoZ. Now, to introduce my guest today properly, Jerome Sauvage is an international relations consultant with extensive experience in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East as UN coordinator in North Korea from 2009 to 2013. He led the UN in providing emergency and humanitarian support to the population represented the UN at bilateral and multilateral levels, uh, negotiated with the government, the UN's operating conditions in that country, and led fundraising efforts in support of humanitarian activities. Welcome on the show, Jerome. Thanks, Jaco. Uh, yeah, you have some unique experience. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Of course, you left North Korea t 10 years ago, four years after taking on the job of resident coordinator. What was North Korea like when you left it and how was that different to when you arrived there in 2009? When I arrived, for one thing, uh, Kim Jong-il was the leader. And mm -hmm. when I left, it was Kim Jong-un. Uh, right. That's certainly a change. On the economic level, I, I did see um, certainly the rise of China as the main, if not the sole, trade partner of North Korea. Mm. I would also say that I saw the continued rise of the of the local markets, the Jangmangdang. Yeah. So these are some of the things I saw in four years. And when you went to North Korea, how did you understand your role as the UN's resident coordinator? What did you think you would be doing? Well, I was certainly influenced by my first job in Vietnam in 83 to 85, when um, I witnessed the opening of, of the society and the economy in what mm. is called Doimoi. Doimoi, yeah. I probably thought that I was going to, you know, I think everyone going to North Korea hopes that they yeah. will witness the opening of North Korea. It took me not a whole long of time to figure out that North Korea was not like Doi Moi's Vietnam, or for that matter, uh, Deng Xiaoping's China. It's not the same. As to what I expected to do, I expected to help uh, coordinate the work of the UN system and the humanitarian team in North Korea. You left North Korea 10 years ago. Are you still keeping up to date with what's been happening in North Korea, at least until the pandemic started? 
Well, I, like everybody, I, I, I read the work of, of the researchers and the mm -hmm. academics. I listen to NK News podcast. I read uh, NK News articles. Uh -huh. I also am a member of the American uh, National Committee on North Korea. Ah, yes. And as a result, we, we benefit from some great briefings. I recently had the briefing of the sitting resident coordinator, Mr. Moring, um, yeah. who briefed us on the UN uh, in DPRK. So that has been the ways by which I've kept in touch. Unfortunately, I have no more contact with North Koreans, uh, not a single person. Oh, okay. Not even the mission to the United Nations in New York. No, I, you know, I'm no longer at the UN and right. um, I'm no longer a member of the United Nations. They, they have not contacted me, nor have I contacted them. Ah, okay. All right, well, uh, let's go back and, and get some uh, historical context. When and how did uh, United Nations field agencies begin their engagement with the DPRK? Well, there was a small office by the UN Development Program in the 80s and a few projects. Mm -hmm. But basically, like the rest of the international NGOs, the real start is the 1995-1996, the famine caused by floodings yeah. and by also the loss of the support of the Soviet Union, which brought in, which opened the country to international humanitarian aid. And so that was led by the World Food Program at the time and a few other UN agencies. Yeah. Could you tell us what the other agencies were, just uh, for, for the clarity there? So World Food Program and who else was there? So World Food Program, a Food and Agricultural Organization, FAO. Mm -hmm. World Health Organization, WHO, yeah. UNICEF, the Children's Aid Organization, and the UN Fund for Population Activity, UNPA, mm. and finally, the UN Development Program. This has been you know, the six agencies that have been through the period in DPRK. Okay, and I'm not very clear on what the difference is between the World Food Program and the Food and Agricultural Organization. How is their work different? Well, definitely the you know on this on the spectrum or the continuum from humanitarian aid to development aid, mm -hmm. you tend to have the World Food Program is really a humanitarian organization more yeah. d dedicated to the provision of food supplies to population in crisis, whereas FAO would be more interested into the agricultural part, right. uh, the more development part of, of food growing and food production. If you were, uh, it's a bit oversimplified, but that would be the difference. Okay. All right. Now, what happened uh, in 2007 and how did that change the UN's work in the DPRK? Well, no, in 2007, simply UNDP, the development program, closed its office for two years in order to strengthen its uh, operating procedures make sure that we have better control of our projects and our flow of funding. But that only applied to one agency, UNDP. And my job uh, in 2009 was to reopen the office. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. And you are the, uh, but you are overseeing all the agencies in a way or coordinating them all, weren't you? That's right. You know, you, you are a, a coordinator. That's in other words for, you know, a cut herder. Uh, yeah. You're not, you don't supervise the agencies. Oh. Um, you, you are not the, you cannot fire the people or you cannot uh, write negative performance evaluation even. Uh, you are just a person who is trying to create a team by using, trying to create a framework within which the organization operate by playing a role as a, a spokesperson, a, a fundraiser very mm -hmm. often, a team leader, and in the case of humanitarian crises, the coordinator of the response to a given crisis. Right. And as you say, you you couldn't uh, fire people. Did you have anybody working under you, or is the uh, coordinator really just a, a one-person job? Right. You have a team. In the case of North Korea, it was a team of two. It's not a very large program. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And one more thing. 
some of the funding for humanitarian aid goes through the resident coordinating office. Ah. So as a result, you do have the power of the purse to an extent. Right. Okay. And and who is the uh, the coordinator uh, reporting up to? So the coordinator reports to the UN Secretary General mm. through an office called the Development Cooperation Office. Yeah. Now, I should say that the coordinator has several hats. Ah. You are always the head of an agency. In my case, I was the head of UN Development Program. Right. Often in North Korea, it has also been the head of the World Food Program mm -hmm. because WFP is such a large organization in North Korea. Right. You're also the head of security for the staff. I only had to activate that hat once during ah. the bombing of the Yongpyong Island. For a yes. moment, we thought perhaps there was some high tension on the peninsula. Perhaps we would have to evacuate. So I had to reactivate our, our evacuation plans. As you know, it didn't come to any of it, and uh, we didn't have to do any of that. Did you have your bags packed and ready to go? Well, what you know, you have a series of steps when you organize a, a possible evacuation. Yeah. So you identify your evacuation points uh, by road or by air, in our case, it's by road to Dandong. Mm. And you simply announce to people to you know stay stay in place and uh, be ready. Yeah. Uh, but it, but it's a, it's a lot of a lot of trip wires before going right. to a level of evacuation. We never went there. Okay. And how many days were you uh, in that sort of uh, readiness state? I don't really remember. I think it must have been a week. Okay. Wow. Yeah. 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 No, we 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 never really seriously considered an evacuation. Um, ah. we, we had to be ready, yeah. but it, it never came out to, to any of it. Okay, so that's interesting. So you had multiple hats. You were running the UNDP and also coordinating the other agencies uh, altogether. That's right. The, U, the resident coordinator has to have also an operational yeah. job yeah. over one agency. Right. Okay. And that things continued uh, in that way up until the coronavirus pandemic broke out. That's my understanding. Is that correct? That's exactly right. The UN agencies are were continuing their work mm -hmm. at the time and, um, you know, doing their, you know, their four pillars of food and nutrition and health and water and sanitation. Yeah. And they were doing some really interesting work. There was a census. There is a census underway of the population. So, yeah, absolutely. The work was was going on. Okay. And, and the UN was working on the, uh, the census at the time too, was it? That's right. Um, uh -huh. We did our first census when I was there in 2008. It produced a fascinating picture of, of the North Korean population. Uh, I really recommend to take a look at it. And um, UN, the UN is currently um, issuing a version for the decade of the 2010s, 2020s decade. Mm -hmm. Yes, I understand that the, the government of North Korea carried out its own survey a few years ago, but uh, we don't have those uh, statistics uh, released yet. Right, Is that right? right. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not uh, familiar with uh, a survey done by by North Korea of its population census. Here it's really done by, you know, it's done professionally with the help of the UN FPA, the Population Active uh, Agency, and the support of several donors. Mm -hmm. In 2020, along with uh, many of the other embassies and, and agencies, uh, all the UN workers left uh, North Korea, didn't they? That's right. Uh, North Korea closed the borders in January 2020, I believe. Uh-huh, yeah, by very March early. 20 yeah, by March 2020, um, resident international NGOs and UN agencies were leaving. I think the very last person left in March 2021, but the majority oh. left in the in the spring of 2020. Okay, and I, I imagine that the UN is uh, eager to go back there when that becomes available, correct? Absolutely, I'm sure. I mean, when we heard our resident coordinator, uh, Mr. Mooring, 
indicate yeah. that they are ready to go back. Okay. All right. Yeah. But it, I'm not sure if North Korea is going to be opening up this year, but we live in hope. Yeah. And, you know, it's a decision that that's probably taken at the very highest level. So we work with government. They will tell the UN when, when they're good and ready, when they will get it from, from higher up. Yeah. Okay, let's try to get a sense of the, the various humanitarian programs uh, that were running in North Korea before the pandemic started in 2020. Can you uh, give us a snapshot of what the humanitarian situation was like when you first went there in, uh, in 2008? Yeah, so the situation in, when I arrived in 2009 Sorry, um, nine. was, I think it hasn't changed all that much, so, but it's what I witnessed. Uh, basically, first on the food front, you had an agriculture that is, was not able to feed its people. Mm. Uh, you're talking about a land mass that's 80% mountain, and yeah. I mean really mountain. So the 20% left for agriculture, you have to use mechanization and fertilizers if you want to feed everybody. Yeah. So there's a chronic deficit of food uh, year on, year out, and sometimes bad and sometimes very bad. On nutrition, you also have, I would say, 16 million out of the 25 million North Koreans depend on the public distribution system. Mm -hmm. And that's how they get their oil, their sugar, or the cereal. Out of these people, the UN estimated about 10.5 million people who are in a vulnerable situation. So that's and what's, what's defined as vulnerable? So defined vulnerable is you have indicators that evaluate malnutrition, mm -hmm. chronic malnutrition, extreme malnutrition. And these are indicators out of surveys that are conducted by the UN. Mm. So you, when you evaluate um, the, where the, the growth of a child should be, indicators of that nature. On the health level, you have, I found a health system that existed on paper from Ministry of Health to, mm. to the district level, to the re-level. But in fact, it's an empty shell, no medicine, no electricity, no water, mm. the no delivery of services to, to, to the population. And finally, on, on water, access to water, very uneven, quality of water, very poor, waterborne diseases in, in great, uh, in generalized through the population. So this is the situation that I saw when I, when I arrived in North Korea in 2009. Going back to uh, to agriculture, I've heard it said that even in the best ideal world, neither North nor South Korea should be agriculturally self-sufficient. Would you agree with yeah. that? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's true that they are not large food producers. Mm. But again, you know, neither is Japan. And uh, with, um, as I said, with mechanization, with fertilizers yeah. and with imports. I mean, you're right. Nations like this ought and will and should depend on the part of their food to be imported from abroad. Right. And there's nothing special about that. It's just in the case of North Korea, almost, not almost, but every year they've had to, during my time, import 300 to 500,000 metric ton of food from China. Uh, is that mostly cereals or is it other things too? That's right. We tend to, when I talk about food, we talk about cereal, yeah. wheat, barley, uh, corn, uh, rice, sorghum. Uh, we're talking about cereal. Mm-hmm. To come back to uh, the, one of the hats that you wore, the role of the, uh, the resident coordinator, does that exist in other countries too? Oh, yeah. You know, it sort of got developed because the UN system is a huge spaghetti dish of agency at the field level. Yeah. And, you know, you're talking about resident agencies and non-resident agencies that also have business with the country. Ah. And so it became really complicated to man maneuver all this and put it into a coherent framework. Yeah. So the idea has been to create those positions. And you have now 130 
resident coordinators in program countries huh. covering over 160 countries and territories. Okay, and going back to so the um, the resident agencies, you mentioned there was the uh, the World Food Program, the, the World Health Organization, the Food and Agricultural Organization, the, um, uh, what was the one, the Population Activities? That's right, the UN Fund for Population Activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and UNICEF, those are five. Are there, were there any more? Have I forgotten any? Yeah, the sixth one is UNDP, UN RDP. Development Program. Yeah, right. UNDP used to be the one in charge of providing the coordinators for for uh, coordination. Now, with the system has been expanded uh, to all agencies, and UNDP on the continuum of humanitarian development is more into long term development. Ah, yes. Okay. And what were the some of the non resident agencies that were also doing things in North Korea without having a person stationed there full time? Yeah, so you're going to have, of course, SCAP, which is the regional arm of the UN for Asia, mm-hmm. based in Bangkok. And they do have programs, they have seminars, they have trainings, you know, a number of things like that. That's one. Then, then you've got, you know, say UNESCO. There is a few World Heritage sites that yes. have to be managed. You know, the Corio tombs. Yes. Um, UNESCO would come. That's right. UNESCO would come regularly. Uh, to check how that was being maintained. Um, oh. You have civil aviation organization. A plane cannot take off from mm-hmm. Pyongyang or land in Pyongyang without the civil aviation organization checking security every year, et cetera, et cetera. There's yeah. a lot of UN agencies that are active in North Korea, but not present in North Korea. And generally speaking, what's the the level of trust like uh, between uh, the the government of the DPRK and the different agencies of the UN is is it a, a good trust relationship well it's uh, it's it's trust but verify mm-hmm. <laughs> you trust that you will fight to be sure that you keep your operating conditions uh, best you can the government of north korea is uh, used to working with uh, with the UN agencies and the yeah. NGOs uh, they have their demands and they they'll put them very bluntly to you uh, in turn, you have your your constraints, mm-hmm. and you have to put them most equally bluntly, and and it's a negotiation. But trust, yeah, um, you could call it trust. And of course, as you, as you hinted, there are other organizations, other NGOs, and and of course, the Red Cross is in North Korea too, in some form. And and so, did you right. compare with the uh, the heads of other organizations to see who was uh, who was having a more difficult or an easier time of uh, of dealing with the North Korean government? That's right. There is a there is a year a weekly meeting uh, organized by the UN resident coordinator in which everybody shows up and uh, you know trade stories, uh, says what they've been doing, yeah. and uh, we we trade notes in terms of our operating conditions. Yeah. For example, access. Um, yeah. You know, access to a project is the North Korean counterpart sometimes tries to limit it to advance notice of 12, 24, 36 hours. Uh, before you can go and check out a project for monitoring purposes. Yeah. So we we compare notes. If somebody gets a better access, well, we try to get the same. Yeah, because you said, well, that's a precedent. Now everybody can uh, can ask for that. That's right. Okay. And it sounds like you are uh, not just uh, coordinating the uh, the six UN agencies, but you're really coordinating all the, the different aid workers in North Korea, bringing them together to exchange their own experiences. Well, there is a there is a regular there's a process. Um, two things: one, uh, the resident coordinator issues an annual fundraising appeal, mm-hmm. and uh, in that, uh, the resident INGOs yep. uh, are included. So when you see that document, uh, um. very interesting, that's put out by the UN Office for Humanitarian Affairs, OCHA, yeah. uh, you see the name of those five. Right now, it's four 
agencies that are there with their funding requirements. So right. that's one role uh, in the coordination process. Another one is when there is an acute crisis, say a flood, mm -hmm. then you will, the coordinator will uh, bring in the agencies together to make a joint appeal uh, for funding. There are differences. The Red Cross sometimes is not part of it and has mm -hmm. its own separate process, uh. but it's all, we're all trying to work together in order to be coordinated so that also when you go do the assessment of the crisis, we organize one visit, one team. You know, when you do yep. the monitoring of the delivery, one team. How often does a, uh, a crisis like a flood happen in North Korea? Is that pretty much an annual thing? In my case, in my four years, I must have had, I don't remember, two years were really pretty bad. Mm -hmm. And my understanding from uh, the resident coordinator, Mr. Mooring, is that there are uh, perhaps now a concern that climate change is affecting North Korea and the the climate problem might be much more severe. I just want to say, yeah. you know, the problem in North Korea is that the agriculture is incredibly fragile. Mm. So basically, there is the issue of erosion, but yeah. there's also the issue that if you get delayed by a week or two, or let alone three or four weeks, yes. uh, in terms of your planting or in terms of your harvesting, you're going to lose a whole lot more than in countries that have more robust a crop protection systems. Is that because of, of the of the seasons? No, in this case, it's first of all because the, the agricultural systems are weak. For example, we estimated in my time, and I don't think it has changed all that much, that North Korea may be losing up to 20 to 30% of its crop uh -huh. just because after harvest, they don't store it ad adequately. What? What's going on with it? Where where are they storing it? And, and what defines adequate storage? So, you know, you, everybody gets out of the city and start harvesting in the fields, right? Yes, yes. There's a time for harvesting. So everybody goes harvesting. Then the, the harvest lays fallow on the ground yeah. and you need to gather it. You need, you need tractors. There is no tractor. You need trucks. There's not a whole lot of trucks. You need yeah. to transport that to places and you keep them into silos or mm -hmm. some kind of storage that are adequate and the infrastructure is just not there. And so um, right there, you lose a lot more through not just rodent, but just rot and other issues with agricultural harvest storage yeah. that I don't know much about. That means that you will lose more crop than in another country with better uh, in infrastructure. It seems like, a, well, something that people often say about North Korea is that, you know, why can't they uh, work out their uh, their food problems when they're perfectly capable of uh, building highly technical missiles and, and nuclear weapons? And it must have been quite frustrating to see twenty percent of the harvest lost each time. It's very frustrating, and and it's it it it's really it's really you're right. Uh, the capacities are there. Yeah, it's just that the fund the priorities in funding are, right. are, don't go to harvest protection. Let's put it this way. Yeah. And is you know, that something that you sometimes discussed with your North Korean counterparts? There really is not a lot of point discussing uh, yeah. the respective priorities of the regime between nuclear and, and feeding the people. It is clear, and I used to say it when I was there, that the feeding of the population, of the vulnerable population, is priority number two mm. uh, to the defense, the survival of the regime. Uh, there's no question about that. Right. The financial priorities are very clear. Uh, now, there are these uh, four pillars of, uh, of major activities uh, that you uh, mentioned earlier uh, in North Korea, uh, food, 
nutrition, health, and and wash. Can you walk <laughs> us through those four, please? So on food, there's three dimensions. There's the agricultural dimension. I've talked yeah. about some of the projects, like you know, uh, protecting crops, yeah. uh, seeds diversification. So that's the more long-term development part of the world. The other part is distribution. Mm -hmm. So that's really the World Food Program, which targets a population in needs. Yeah. It is children, mothers with very young children or pregnant mothers. If there's enough funding, it will be uh, the elderly. Mm -hmm. And um, they bring it food, which they transform into stuff that can be delivered, uh, the biscuits or a form of a supplement, you know, that goes into the daily, daily uh, food. Yeah. which they distribute um, uh, in, in that way. Uh, that is the food supply. On the nutrition Just side... Just let me uh, interrupt for a second there. Um, of course. Would most of the, the people receiving food be in the countryside of North Korea, or are there also people in cities getting the, the, yeah. uh, the food? So, yeah, the, the focus is really to reach the more vulnerable people. Mm -hmm. You will find the vulnerable people uh, outside of Pyongyang in areas uh, that are largely in rural areas, but also in some, some towns that are not particularly, uh, you know, well-equipped. And there is the World Food Program runs, at the time it was seven to nine uh, little factories in which yeah. they were transforming what they brought and they were distributing it uh, throughout the country outside uh, to food distribution centers uh, outside of the, of the capital city. Okay. And just uh, as a bit of uh, background or context there, do you have any idea what percentage of the North Korean population is urbanized? Good question. You know, I'm hesitating. Um, it's a high percentage, relatively high percentage of population, and I, I don't remember that number. Okay. I don't recall. Nope, nope, nope. But now it's there's not a whole lot of people in the rural areas. It's, right. it's pretty urbanized. Okay. Yep. And so returning then to, uh, to nutrition, the second of the four pillars. Right. So nutrition is because, you know, through their surveys, UNICEF, WHO, World Food Program have found that you know the diet of the North Korean is extremely poor. Only seven percent of the population eats an, a, a diet that is has enough protein rich and uh, seven percent. Did you say seven percent? No, that's very small. It's very small. Um, that has produced in high protein food or fruit. Yeah. And so we're always depending on two things: cereal and cabbage. You know, yeah. kimchi. Right. And and uh, so it's it's a huge problem. So they target again. Population in need, children, mothers, the elderly, and to try to give them really high protein nutrients that are almost in the form of medicine. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's nutritional programs. Okay. It, it, is that given in a liquid form or something like a pill or a powder? Well, you know about oral rehydration therapy, ORT. You know, it's pretty famous at UNICEF. Yes. So it's a mixture of... Um, of a, it's, 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 it's in liquid form, uh -huh. uh, but there's all kinds of ways uh, to do the delivery system. You know, you can have those biscuits, you can have oral rehydration therapy. So it can be something that to put into a glass of water, okay. uh, provided the water is clean. Well, and we'll come to that in the fourth pillar. And moving on now to health, you've already said that the, the health system is a bit of a, a hollow shell in North Korea, that there's really not much service delivery going on there. So how is how are the UN agencies helping in the way of health? So they will work along from direct assistance to targeted population. Uh, they will help a dispensary, uh, a local hospital, uh, to give them essential medicine and also to give medicine to um, women uh, having uh, doing a delivery 
so that they don't bleed to death. Mm. So that you call it essential medicine program. That's one thing. And also it goes on up a bit to training, training nurses, training doctors, sometimes providing some equipment for hospitals that uh, they can use um, uh, in the hospitals. What about setting up solar panels to uh, give electricity to the hospitals? Is that part of it as well? That's right. That's right. There are solar panels have been uh, given to hospitals uh, so that indeed uh, they can use electricity. Absolutely. And I've heard also before that uh, there's often a uh, just a shortage of uh, of cotton to make the gauze bandages that are needed in hospitals. Is, is that something that the UN was helping with too? I don't know if they've been providing uh, gauze. Uh, mm. There's a shortage of everything. Absolutely. Yeah, it's just no medicine. The shortage is, is generalized in the hospitals and dispensaries of, uh, of, of uh, DPRK's health system. Absolutely. All right. And and the fourth uh, pillar, uh, wash or water and uh, right, water sanitation. and sanitation yeah. <laughs> for health. For wash health, water sanitation. Yeah, this is a, another strong UNICEF, particular UNICEF program, which is really to pay attention to water. So it could be drilling, uh, drilling wells. Yeah, uh, it could be uh, uh, showing uh, very basic, simple gestures uh, for um, uh, hand washing techniques. Very simple ways to purify the water. Testing water so that uh, diarrhea uh, can be uh, checked. Diarrhea is a major problem in North Korea. You really have the diseases of poverty, you know, um, in in DPRK. Which, which, I mean, is that unusual for an industrialized state? It's very unusual for this region. You know, in, in 1990, the maternal mortality rate was for all of Northeast Asia, including North Korea, but leaving aside Japan, yeah. was 50 death a woman for 100,000 life births, okay? Okay. In 2018, it almost doubled to between 80 and 90 in North Korea, and it wow. went half for the rest of Northeast Asia, excluding Japan, to 25%. So it's very shocking to me that, you know, I'm not comparing Africa. Yeah. I'm not comparing it with Europe either. I'm comparing North Korea with its direct neighbors. Northeast Asia. And the indicators from, for example, maternal mortality went exactly the opposite. The opposite, wow. Yeah. And that's partly related to the water and sanitation for health, is it? It's related to everything. Everything, Um, It's related to transport. If a delivery goes wrong, how are you going to get yourself to the hospital? Anyway, if you get to this hospital, there's no medicine there. Yeah. Deliveries happen without anesthetics in North Korea, by the way. So, um, you know, and, and yes, I don't have the number, but North Korea is rather an industry, I mean, is more industrialized in more urbanized mm-hmm. uh, setting than than uh, than a typical developing country. Right. And to come back to the, the water and, and sanitation issue there, uh, I remember, uh, I think it was in, in 2000 or maybe 2001, I heard a talk given by Peter Hayes of the Nautilus Institute, who yep. at that time they were doing some uh, wash projects in North Korea uh, and found that often uh, the the brown water, the, uh, the you know the, the toilet water would would uh, uh-huh. mix with the water that was being drunk, and so some of the issues were just to simply put in the right pipe so that uh, you wouldn't get the water mixing. And uh, is that still a, a fundamental problem in North Korea? It's a fundamental problem. Diarrhea is the third killer of children. Uh. So just diarrhea, for Christ's sake. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it, it is fundamental and. North Korean people, Korean people are extremely competent and, and they understand issues yeah. of sanitation. It's just they don't have capacity for it. Again, let's come back to the prioritization by the government, is it? 
That's right. Wow. That I mean, the water. It's so uh, it's so basic. It's so fundamental. And and to see that in uh, when you were there around 2010, that North Korea was still dealing with with these issues. That's uh, it's hard to believe. Yeah, and if you see the program submitted by uh, resident coordinator Moring and the rest of the UN system today, you yeah. see the water sanitation program are still there. Now, what hap happens? Um, you know, when you put in some uh, some pipes and install them, I mean, how long do they last? Is it once you fix the problem, it's it's uh, it's fixed forever in that area, or do you have to go back every ten or twenty years and, and replace everything again? Well, you do have to maintain pipes. Uh, I, I'm not I'm not a water sanitation specialist, right? But yeah, you, you know, you you drill. Uh, you have to make sure to maintain the, the well. And that brings a very good point, which is you need to, what, it's not just putting a pipe. It's not no. just drilling a well. It's making sure that there's a governance around no. that project, that there's people who feel that they own the project. They'll maintain it. But right. if it's something that nobody owns and the governance is not strong enough, nobody's going to take care of it. But, but the, don't the local people's committees uh, take uh, ownership of those projects? Yes, I think they do. As I said, I, I'm not enough of a WASH specialist to tell you how yeah. successful it is, but I mm. think there are issues there too. Now, in doing the, uh, all these uh, this work and the four pillars, how do the UN agencies help to tether the, the DPRK to the outside world? It's, it's all those UN agencies that do two things. I mean, they, they are producing data uh, to yeah. show to the rest of the world uh, what, what is uh, North Korea about, whether it's the crop and food assessment, whether it's the indicator surveys of, of health. But they also bring to the DPRK the normative element of the UN. I was talking about landing a plane. There are rules to be followed. Sending a letter. Uh, you have rules to be followed for the Universal Postal Union and uh -huh. and being part of trade uh, to the extent that North Korea is part of international trade uh, and so on and so forth. Discussing climate change. Um, right. North Korea is part of the United Nations and there's a lot of production of norms and rules uh, that they have to abide by. I'm not talking about human rights or mm -hmm. you know politics. I'm talking about the practical operational rule that make a, make our world function. Yeah. And does North Korea uh, willingly do all this? They do, generally. So they have a big capacity issue. It's hard for them to be present in the myriads of meetings and discussions and treaties and so on. One is to discuss, you know, civil aviation. Mm -hmm. But they do to the extent that they can. When you say there's a capacity problem, is that because there are too few diplomats that are in the outside world from North Korea? Correct. The Ministry okay. of Foreign Affairs does not have that many people. Ah, okay. Uh, now, let's uh, try to uh, demystify uh, the United Nations humanitarian aid to North Korea. Uh, you often hear it said that North Korea is in a permanent state of humanitarian crisis. Is that an accurate thing to say? I don't think it's accurate to say that it's permanent state of humanitarian crisis. I, I've, I've had my share of crises, and when mm -hmm. I get to a region or, or a country, I would find populations roaming around without any supplies, and the state was unable to provide protection or support, and they would end up being moving to another place. They were internally displaced, or mm -hmm. they would go out of the country, and they were refugees. Yeah. Uh, in North Korea, you don't see that exactly the same. Uh, the state provides plenty of protection, mm -hmm. probably too much, and um, the populations cannot even move if they decide to move. So, and the state does provide to, to an extent. So it's not the kind of humanitarian crisis as we are used to. It's more of a protracted 
situation in which the population is experiencing a chronic malnutrition, utter lack of access to health services. Uh, that's a better way to define it. Yeah. There are sometimes an acute crisis in a region if there's a, a flood, a hurricane, but not. it's not the same way of describing a crisis. And some critics might suggest that humanitarian assistance from the UN and other agencies has helped to prop up the uh, the government of the DPRK. Is that a, a fair thing to say? Well, no. First of all, let's look at the numbers. Past de decade, the amount of money that has been brought in by the UN system, that has been expended, I mean, by the UN system a year was about 20 to $25 million. Mm -hmm. That's $1 per North Korean per person. Right. Per year. Yeah. So that's that's really peanuts, of which that money is already spent on supplies bought abroad. And so basically, there's very little cash coming into the country, really. Yeah. Uh, so that just from a purely financial perspective, uh, that's not going to help you purchase, um, you know, nuclear technology, for example. Right. Do uh, outside aid agencies take over some of the work of the North Korean government in, in that uh, they're providing food, for yeah. example, that the North Korean government doesn't do? True. I really wish that the priorities would be different mm. and that the North Koreans uh, regime the government would pay would spend more on their on their population. But the fact is, if we were not there, if the international NGOs were not there, if the UN was not there, the fact is it just would not happen. Mm. Uh, this this uh, vulnerable population would remain vulnerable. And would if that did happen, would that lead to? I mean, that's this is speculative, of course. So feel free not to answer if you. If you don't want to, uh, but do you think that that could lead to some kind of collapse of the, of the uh, of society of the state if if the UN agencies and other agencies were not there? No, I don't think so. I think the impact is is really to stop people from experiencing such severe malnutrition. But you know, we're not seeing a famine in North Korea. We're not seeing people like in 1995. People were actually dying on the streets. Uh, right. It's not like that. It's just a general state of uh, malnutrition and poor health that is, by the way, entering the genetic pool of North Korea. It is proven, UNICEF has done a lot of studies on that, that malnutrition from one generation to the next enters into the genetic pool of a nation, especially a nation as, as closed as North Korea. Mm -hmm. And that's why you see that cognitive capacity of the people physical growth, of course, you know, the difference in size yes. between uh, North and South Koreans capacity to to function uh, is severely limited. So you basically have a population which is second class right. to, to uh, other nations. But that doesn't mean that without the UN, there would be a regime change. No, no. So you said that uh, it enters into the uh, the genetics of, uh, of the population. So if 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 the North Korean food situation was solved right now, today, would that still take another generation or two to make the population healthy and uh, and comparable to uh, those of their neighbors? Absolutely. It will take generations uh, where, where somehow the situation to improve dramatically. Yeah. It would take generations for the North Korean population to regain uh, a lot of what it has lost due to decades of, of suffering. Were the North Korean officials that you talked to when you were there at the time, were they aware of this? Oh, yes. The famine is present in the mind of uh, the members of government I spoke to. The older folks, they really remember. They, it's, it's deeply etched uh, in their psyche. They are aware of it. Yeah. And you said a couple of minutes ago there that uh, we don't seem to be having the kind of 
uh, witnessing the kind of famine in North Korea that, that existed in the mid-1990s. There have been some stories recently reported, I think, uh, by Yonhap and other news agencies in South Korea that said that there were multiple people dying every day in and around Kaesong uh, from chronic or from extreme malnutrition. What would be some signs that we in the outside world would be would expect to see if that were happening? Like, how could we know if that's true? Yeah, well, first, you, you, I'll give you one example. I was in an orphanage once, and I look at a kid, and I'm thinking, okay, that kid is about uh, seven-year-old. No, he was, I said he was maybe six-year-old. Uh -huh. And then the, the UNICEF specialist, no, 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 look at the teeth. And the kid's dentition was fully formed. Wow. That was a 13 or 14-year-old kid. Wow. So things like dentition is a, is a, is a, is a dead, for the specialist yeah. uh, that I'm not, is a dead-on indicator of where people should be. Mm. And UNICEF has those, um, um, you know, middle arm circumference, they measure. Uh -huh. And uh, for the moment, UNICEF says that one to 2% of children under five are severely malnourished. Uh, right. I think I got my number right. So you, 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 you see it and, you know, nobody is overweight in North Korea. But that's that's what um what you can see if you're on the ground. But I mean, in, in the last three years, as you're aware, of course, there haven't been anybody oh. in North Korea. So how how would we know if people were actually dying in North Korea unless the state told us? Oh, we will not know until we get there. Ah, okay. Um, you know, and that's really why I hope that the international NGOs and the UN will come back. The only way you can do it is by doing assessment. Right now, by the way, the UN and NGOs are sending some 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 supplies try to get some some ready-to-eat meals, a little bit of medicine, but they cannot do a lot without monitoring the programs. Mm. They have to be on the ground to assess what's going on, and they have those tools, and then they have to be on the ground to check that what they supply is being sent to the right uh, beneficiaries. How do we know what North Korea needs at any given time? I mean, how are those needs identified? So you've got these these well well tested tools. For example, the crop and food assessment of yeah. the World Food Program and FAO. It's a campaign that lasts three to four weeks uh, on the ground. The teams go in a lot of places. They check. They ask people. They go to households. They have a lot of access, by the way, and they triangulate their information with satellite technology. And they, they see the fields, and that enables them to evaluate what the crop uh, of the year's harvest, um, winter and um, and regular harvest uh, is like. So that's one example. And, and UNICEF, WHO, uh, UNFPA, they have all these tools that are you know well tested, as I said, to 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 test uh, the growth of a child, the weight, etc. It's very very good tools, and they're available online, by the way. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk about some of the constraints that uh, UN agencies have experienced while working in the DPRK. Uh, when when you were there, uh, did the North Korean government have any problem accepting aid and development workers who were either ethnically Korean or who spoke and understood the Korean language? I never had to present a candidate or a staff member who was ethnic Korean, so mm -hmm. I, I would not be able to answer. But there were some pretty good um, Korean speakers. Okay. Um, among among the expatriates. So, yeah, having said that, you always work with an interpreter. Yeah, right. Uh, and, and the interpreters are uh, selected for you by the uh, the government of the DPRK, aren't they? They are. Yeah. But, you know, you learn to work with them and uh, you, you try to influence them too. <laughs> when you say influence them, what do you mean? Well, you tell them what are your concerns. Ah. You say, look, man, you know, we're really going to have to go and, and, and check out these projects, okay? So you need to 
an interpreter interprets both ways is what I'm trying to say. Right. Yeah. Actually, tell us a little bit about uh, just getting access to to the areas and the sites that you want to visit. I mean, what how would that normally go? And and did you have access to all the areas that you wanted to go to? Well, the UN has access to all nine provinces. Mm-hmm. We're the only agency or organization that, that has been to nine provinces, that goes to nine provinces. There are, however, some districts that are not accessible. That's one. Uh, two, are they explained um, to you? Is it Was it explained to you why certain districts were no, off? Okay. No, no, no. We can only uh, speculate as to why yeah. they're not they're off limit. And then, um, at least that was during my time. I don't know how it is now, but that was sure. my time. And then the access means, you know, we would like as uh, humanitarian workers to be able to jump in a car yeah. and go check out something, make sure that the food's being delivered, make sure that uh, the medicine is there. And, right. uh, you know, for them, you know, they, they need to plan the visits all the time. Mm-hmm. So it's a constant negotiation to try to get, you know, as little notice as possible. Right. And how little could it be? What, 24 hours? Well, I remember once WFP negotiated like literally uh, six or three hour uh, notice. Wow. So almost nothing that they were really excited. And that was good. So, you know, it's up and down, up and down. You try to open the window and yeah. and you try to keep it open. And, and when uh, you say that the North Koreans wanted to prepare the visit, what kind of things were they preparing? Well, I think they need to warn the population, the, the people that there is UN or whatever agency is coming, mm-hmm. you know, so they want to make sure that everything is set. But I, I yes, I'm not completely sure what else is to be done. But yeah, they, it's just, you know, the communication are not really easy over there. So they may have to send somebody right. um, because right. there's very little communication and transportation and so on. So when you, when you arrived there uh, at a site visit, did you sometimes get the feeling that it was, a show had been put on for you, a bit of a performance? Oh, you, well, that, by the way, that's not only in North Korea. This, this, the impression that things have been prepared is not new when you go to, a, to do a, a project visit. Uh-huh. So there's nothing that unusual about it. Yeah. So, yeah, you're trying to break through this. You're trying to, you know, to surprise them and you're trying to really visit and see what it is. And you use data. That's another thing. Data does not lie. If you if you if you control the data, uh, for example, you know a doctor would say, "Well, it's very simple. Either uh, this kid's uh, weight goes up, mm-hmm. or you're not giving the medicine." Mm. <laughs> right. Uh, so, yeah, uh, date, uh, what kinds of uh, data were you able to get in North Korea, and were you were the different agencies uh, having to gather the data themselves, or were the North Korean government uh, sharing data, and and how accurate was it? Well, North Korea is certainly the country that I've seen in the world with the least data. I remember I was once in Wonsan uh, yeah. visiting the health department. And as a matter of fact, I asked the health the director of the health program, I said, how much money you got? How much money you spend a year? How much money you, you receive? Mm-hmm. He had no idea. Not that he wanted to tell me. He truly did not know his budget. And that wow. was a surprise. He just didn't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, that was that's anecdotal. Uh, maybe I could be wrong, but, but right. once... We were planning uh, our program with UNDP, and and we were we need data to plan the program. Yeah, and it was so difficult to obtain because there just is no data available, and there's issues. The ministries are very siloed. Yeah, um, so they will not share easily. Sharing data is you know it takes a, a, an environment that is safe. It's always difficult to share data in any country, but it's particularly hard in DPRK. So the data produced by the UN is is invaluable from that perspective because mm-hmm. it's pretty clean data and we are producing. So we produce data on agriculture, food production, you know, as I said, uh, the, the health situation of the population, 
we produce data. We have we had the census done in 2008. There's another mm. census about to that is being issued by the UN. I don't know exactly what is the status of that. So that is some of the data that is being issued regularly. And without the UN in the field, there is no data coming out, as far as I know. Now, uh, presumably, the the North Korean State Security Agency has uh, lots of data on things like population numbers and uh, and who lives in a house and that kind of thing. Did you ever uh, liaise with the State Security Agency? No, no, we did not. Um, when I presented the census in 2009, early 2010, I was very surprised to see uh, uh, military, uh, high-level military show up at the, at the presentation. Huh. Uh, they were very interested. Um, so again, no data sharing, uh, um, I would suspect between the security services and the government, yeah. not likely. Right. It seems to me, I've only been uh, to North Korea a couple of times and, and always on uh, organized tours, but just from driving from Pyongyang to the, the rest of the country, you get the feeling that there's Pyongyang and then there's the rest of North Korea, that there's almost like two two countries in a way. Also, in, just in the vast differences between the infrastructure, but even the the height of the people. Could you just speak to that a little bit about the, whether North Korea is really two countries? That's very true. Pyongyang is the shining city on the hill. It being shown on TV, uh, people all over the country dream about one day getting to to visit, uh, to go there maybe for an event. So it's really the the showcase, not just for the world, but also for the for the population themselves. They make movies there and so on. It's really the the beautiful yeah. city. But yeah, the minute you leave. Pyongyang, and then unless you go to Nampo or Wonsan, a few other places like this, um, you, well, I drove from, in 2011, I drove from Wonsan to Hamhong. Okay. And very, so it's the East Coast, right? Very quickly, yep. uh, the road turned to dirt road. Wow. Now, it was a good dirt road. And yeah. sometimes good dirt road is better than a bad road. Uh, but it was a dirt road um, on a pretty major, uh, major axis. So, yeah. The other mm. thing is energy. I mean, the energy production in, in DPRK is, is, is really uh, very poor. And not just generation, but distribution. Um, the, it, it would take billions and billions of dollars to repair the grid. Right. And, and they, don't, they don't have that. And so there's no, there's no energy distribution. And nowadays we see more and more, in my time, I would see more and more a small hydro uh, being built by the cities, uh, and then keeping it to themselves. By the yeah. way, I suspect in order to just keep energy for for their own. But but it's really uh, you're right. It's maybe not two countries. It's one country with a shining city on the hill. I would say. Okay, I see. And what funding problems uh, were experienced by the UN agencies while you were there to uh, that restricted or hindered their work in the, in the uh, DPRK? Yeah, during my time, it was always the ask was around $100 million to really properly support uh, over 10 million people, mm -hmm. uh, a little bit more. And we, at my time, we would not get, uh, we would be lucky with $30 million. And I see the last request from uh, the resident coordinator, Mr. Mooring. Uh, he says there last time they got $25 million. So funding- Was that before the pandemic? The 25 yeah, million? Before okay, the yeah. pandemic. And you oh. know, so of course, it's completely subject to the vagaries of international politics. Yeah. So, you know, if you have sanctions and the donors are really not satisfied and so on, boom, you know, you're going you're gonna to get it in terms of humanitarian funding. Well, let's talk a little bit about sanctions. To what extent were the United Nations sanctions an impediment to the work of United Nations agencies? Well, uh, when I was there, that's when we lost 
the banking with the Bank of China. Mm-hmm. So it became a little complicated. And I, my understanding is the 10 years since I've been there, it's been getting anything worse. Yeah. So bringing in money was complicated. Now, to be honest, you then pay your staff abroad, you buy your equipment abroad, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, you don't have a whole lot of cash to bring in, but still NGOs and UN have some purchases to do locally. Yeah. So that's one issue. Two, some countries are imposing a very strict technological sanction on equipment for fear of uh, dual use, mm-hmm. military use. So you have to be very careful about that. So the sanctions always indicate a humanitarian exception, and that's very helpful. Having said that, it, it is not easy all the time. And right now, the US NGOs are facing uh, the need to clear their travel also under, under the sanctions regime. So it's, right. not an easy, it's not easy, and it makes the work more difficult. Yes, I've heard from some uh, aid organizations, for example, that they uh, really had a, a great difficulty getting those exceptions, those humanitarian exceptions through the committees at the United Nations, even to uh, to bring, for example, isolation wards for tuberculosis patients because uh, there was metal in, in, in part of the, uh, the kit was metal yeah, and, uh, yeah. door, door yeah, frames I, and hinges. And that seems quite frustrating and needlessly frustrating too. Yeah, I've had my share of funny stories. Once I was showing a, a sieve to check seeds, the, the thickness of seeds. Yes. And somebody, I won't say who, told me, well, that could be used for a nuclear power. And I was like, what? What? Um, <laughs> but okay, you know, you have to work with it. Yeah. So it, it seems like there's a, a tragic irony that the same body that is uh, sending help is also operating sanctions against North Korea. Yeah, well, you know, you're you're a member of the UN and UN is a, it's like a country. It has yeah. a lot of things. The, the, the North Koreans would tell me that in their mind, the Security Council is separate from the operational agencies right. in the field. And they, they were having a construct that helped them accept that was it. Hey, don't forget that in the war in 1953, the UN was on the opposing side. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, we've gone a long way. <laughs> yeah. Now, let's move on to the thorny topic of uh, human rights and UN field agencies. Can on-the-ground engagement by resident UN agencies help improve human rights in North Korea? Well, improve human rights? That might be asking a lot, but certainly the work of UN agencies and international NGOs is founded on human rights principle. And uh, in a way, you've got to try and see how to make the two somehow coexist, if you can. Well, it often seems that that humanitarian workers and agencies must, as part of the just doing their work, uh, ignore or at least not discuss the human rights dimension with uh, the DPRK or in the DPRK. Do you agree that that's true? Well, normally it's a tenet of the humanitarian work that politics and humanitarian aid should not mix. Mm -hmm. Uh, You go in a country, there's warring parties. If you start getting into politics, you're not going to deliver the aid. It's not really possible in DPRK. Everything is political. So you cannot completely ignore the human rights dimension. It is present whether you like it or not. After all, some of the sanctions imposed by countries, some countries are imposed on the ground of human rights. Yeah. Did you ever see, uh, during your travels in North Korea, did you ever uh, see one of the prison camps for uh, political prisoners? Maybe once I ran into a road, perhaps we saw, but no, 
And, and unfortunately, neither the UN nor the Red Cross, for whom this is a mandate, mm. is allowed to go into prisons. How does the, the, the government of the DPRK uh, explain that? I don't think they do. You know, we would, we would have loved to bring uh, uh, food aid and, and medicine to, to prisons. And yeah. uh, they just they just don't answer, really. Mm. Do they say we don't have prisons? I have not heard that, no. Okay. Is there a, a space for specific field-based engagement on human rights? Well, a little bit. There's a bit of space. I mean, we I think of entry points, maybe, and that would be the UN conventions. Just to name a few, UN Convention on the Right of the Child, mm. UN Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, UN Convention on the Right uh, of People with Disability. These are conventions that have spawned civil society activism around the world to turn those conventions into reality. And in North Korea, we've done a little bit of work around that, training around disability issues. We did gender disaggregation in all the data, the UNICEF and World yeah. WHO and others have, have really insisted that data be gender disaggregated. There's been uh, some of that. And, and, you know, eight questions in the census are about disability. Uh -huh. So, you know, these are small entry points. It's minuscule, really, but there are entry points that go towards uh, towards a bit of an opening of the window. And I should just add one thing here. It's not just the what, but it's also the who. You've got people in the government of North Korea who are interested in that. And I'm a believer in the theory put forward by uh, Patrick McEachern in the book, Inside the Red Box, mm -hmm. a study of totalitarianism in North Korea, which is the way I understand it, and it's probably not exactly what it is, but I understand it as these three centers of power in the North Korean regime that vie for the attention of Mr. Kim, yeah. the party, the military, and the government. The UN system works only with the government. But this government, they are by nature a little more open. And there are people, and they see that they get goodies as a result of this cooperation. Mm -hmm. And that is the rock upon my desire of engaging with North Korea. There are people who believe that they can engage and that believe it's good. And these people are sometimes very brave. Um, they will try to take on the security apparatus and try to push the envelope as well. Yeah. As an example, in 2011, we published, we wanted to publish the first Sustainable Development Goal uh -huh. report. It's about how the country is faring to meet its international goals. At the time, it was called Millennium Development. Yes. And, and these people in the, in the government, they pushed hard to say access to water is not great. It's not equal. Uh, there are issues. There is poverty, you know, words like this. Mm. And they had to take on people inside, you know, the regime that didn't like that. Mm. And they did it. Unfortunately, the UN did not accept the report. Oh. Because the standard was too low. Um, you know, the data was not comparable from the right. international perspective. It was it was weak. There was words that was a little bit, you know, excessive. So it was not, you know, it was a first report. It was not good enough. And I personally really regretted that we didn't stick with it and say, okay, not the best report. We'll try to do better next time. Yeah, that's a, that's a pity. Uh, I imagine you must have had... Um some difficult and sometimes awkward conversations during your four years there uh, with government people. Yeah, what sometimes tells me, oh, I'm ready to do a human rights-based approach in programming. I was, oh, that was a little uncomfortable because I don't think we're there yet. 
Mm. Or if on Convention of Elimination of Discriminating Women, I wanted to celebrate that the anniversary of the sanitary by North Korea. Yeah. And they said, no, 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 we don't need to do it. We've achieved, ah. we've achieved women's equality. No problem. Right. So right. things like that, you, you always encounter a little, uh, you know, moment that was a bit uncomfortable. Um, also, once you know, it's typical of the UN to want to do policy dialogue, you know, you try to create a, a level of discussion with the government and you try to 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 see how we can move the move forward the, the project. And he said, well, you know, policy dialogue, that doesn't belong to us. That belongs to the leader. Uh, we, we, the word policy is, uh, and I don't know how it translates in, in Korean, but the word policy, no, that's that's not for government. It's for the leader. Gee, uh, how did you um, maintain your sanity up there? How did you keep <laughs> well, peace? Well, first of all, I was with my wife, ah. as, who was the only American citizen. And uh, so we, we were very lucky we were together. And so mm -hmm. that was great. And secondly, great expat community, a lot of fun, wonderful people, best friends ever had. Mm. Uh, so that was, that was wonderful. And thirdly, you know, it's a very quiet life uh, at some level, take a lot of walks. We had a car. Yeah. We would drive around all over several, several destinations. Mm -hmm. And yeah, yep, yeah, it was okay. It, it went fine. What's the longest period of, of time that you've been in North Korea without traveling outside? Well, it's true that because of my functions, I did get to go out a, a quite a bit. I'd say four months. Mm -hmm. So I, I was lucky. I was among those who was coming out more often than some uh, of my friends and colleagues of NGOs and UN system. Well, finally, let's uh, turn our focus to the near future. Obviously, uh, knowledge of current events in North Korea has been very limited since they closed the border in uh, in early 2020. Although uh, we at NK News and NK Pro, we use various tools and sources to get information about what's happening there, as our subscribers will know. But it's not the same as when there were international people working in North Korea and seeing directly on the ground what was happening there. We mentioned earlier that the UN agencies are... Uh, planning to go back, how, how quick could that happen if, if, for example, North Korea were to open the borders today? How fast could people move back in, do you think? Oh, you know, to put together a team to mm. go and do an assessment, because that would be the first thing. You would an need assessment, to, okay. You would need to check out what's going on. You right. would need to assess. So you would need to send food specialists, your nutrition people, a, a group of people like this, and you would make sure that the teams go on the ground and see the situation. That would be one. Two, I mean, I presume the offices are still there. Hopefully, they've been somewhat maintained. I hope that the World Food Program factories uh, have been maintained because there is equipment there. And so it, those UN team and those international NGOs, they can mobilize very fast. Okay, so hopefully they're not starting from the beginning again. I hope so. I hope so. What do you think the world could or might discover has happened in North Korea in the last three years during its self-imposed isolation? Well, I I don't know. Um, no, no one knows. Mm. I hope that some of the other things that have been going on for the last twenty years of thirty years of humanitarian aid uh, will have helped. Uh, resilience yeah. uh, has been uh, sufficiently brought into techniques and into communities that they have more tools than they used to in 1995 when they were so dependent on the public distribution system mm. that they didn't realize that food was no longer coming. So I think there's a greater resilience and yeah. self-reliance at the individual level. I want to hope that. Yeah, yeah. Would you like to go back and have another look? Yes, I would love to go back and have another look. But 
we have a great team over there now, so um, we'll be we'll, we'll be fine with the team that we have. Right. Yeah. Well, let's hope they can go in uh, again very soon. Uh, thank you once again for coming on the podcast today, Jerome Sauvage. Thank you, Jaco. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of our podcast today. If you already have an NK News account, and if you're a think tank, business or academic institution or UN agency, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services, specifically catering to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access or a free trial membership by writing an email to membership at nknews.org today. Thanks, as always, to Brian Betts and Arias Dare for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, coughs, etc. And don't forget, please do go to nknews.org survey and fill in the survey so we can make a better podcast for your listening pleasure. Thanks and listen again next time.